Welcome to another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. I'm Marcus Path. He's Reggie Rizzo. On today's episode, a race to explore ancient underwater civilizations in Europe. We'll give you the details. How sea otters are saving the California marshlands. Plus, a bizarre find at the home of a deceased Seattle area man. All that plus this day in history, the first big screen appearance for a Marvel superhero. And here's a hint. It took place 80 years ago. That's coming up. Cool Stuff Ride Home. We've got a fascinating story out of popular mechanics today, detailing scientists' race to study a host of ancient civilizations that are now wholly submerged by the North and Baltic Seas. Why the urgency, you ask? Well, time is of the essence because many of the regions scientists hope to explore are also considered prime real estate for wind farm installations, many of which are needed to combat today's rising sea levels. Now for some background, it's believed that between 8 and 10,000 years ago, the North and Baltic Seas really didn't exist, at least not in their current massive state. Instead, there were vast plains in the area, containing a number of different civilizations. But as the last ice age drew to a close, water levels rose and overtook these low-lying areas, meaning all signs of humanity were left submerged beneath or washed away with the ocean waters. Now the University of Bradford's Submerged Landscapes Research Center, which is based in the UK, the TNO Geological Survey of the Netherlands, Flanders Marine Institute, and the University of York are planning to explore these long-lost civilizations as part of a research collaboration known as Subnordica. Among their many goals is the exploration of Doggerland, a region believed to have thrived around 8,200 years ago, which essentially connected the current British Isles with mainland Europe. Per National Geographic, Doggerland was occupied by Mesolithic people. Mesolithic refers to a specific period of the Stone Age, and anthropologists say they were hunter-gatherers who migrated with the seasons, fishing, hunting, and gathering food such as hazelnuts and berries. Now, over time, the Doggerlanders were slowly flooded out of their hunting grounds after water once locked away in glaciers and ice sheets began to melt. Then around 6,000 years ago, the Mesolithic people were forced into higher ground, including what is now Britain and the Netherlands. Vincent Gaffney is the leader of the Submerged Landscapes Research Center. In a recent press statement, he said, quote, 20,000 years ago, the global sea level was 130 meters lower than at present. With progressive global warming and sea level rise, unique landscapes home to human societies for millennia disappeared. We know almost nothing about the people who lived on these great plains. As Europe and the world approaches net zero, development of the coastal shelves is now a strategic priority. Subnordica will use the latest technologies to explore these lands and support sustainable development, end quote. Now, if you're wondering, 130 meters is approximately 426 feet. And if we assume one story of a typical building is around 14 feet high, we're talking about water levels rising the equivalent of approximately 30 building stories. Yikes. Now, as scientists explore these long-lost regions, they'll be employing the assistance of advanced seabed mapping, along with computer simulation of the lost settlements, among other tools. They'll also be leaning into magnetic field data gathered from magnetometers, originally deployed to assess the potential environmental impact of future green energy initiatives. Per the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, a magnetometer is a passive instrument that measures changes in the Earth's magnetic field. In ocean exploration, it can be used to survey cultural heritage sites such as ship and aircraft wrecks and to characterize geological features on the seafloor. 
University researchers say magnetic fields can also help identify peat-forming areas or where erosion has occurred, for example, in river channels. Today, this land largely makes up the coastal shelf that is now under development as North Sea nations install offshore wind farms to combat climate change. This massive expansion of green energy infrastructure could limit scientific access to these areas, so projects like Subnautica are rushing to investigate the area before it's too late. Per Peter Mo Astrup, underwater archaeologist at Denmark's Mosegard Museum, quote, Subnautica will investigate the significance of ancient coastlines and its resources for humans. Through diving surveys in Aris Bay, which is in Denmark, we will determine how widespread coastal settlements were compared to those in the interior and determine how marine resources were exploited 9,000 to 8,500 years ago. This knowledge will then be used to target archaeological investigations in less accessible areas, end quote. Today, as countries once again grapple with the challenges posed by rising sea levels, scientists are actively investigating the fate of ancient civilizations that experienced a similar peril of rising temperatures, which ultimately extinguished their societies. So, Reggie, I mean, obviously, there are parts of this story that are very relevant to what we're facing today, but I don't know if I'm missing the point to some extent, but more than anything, I'm just really anxious to see what they uncover down there, what they're able to find out about these ancient civilizations, because presumably this is all new information to us, stuff that has never really been looked into before by scientists. I'm going to be honest with you here. Ever since I was a little boy, I've been obsessed with Atlantis. Now, I'm not saying they're going to find Atlantis, and I don't think Atlantis, if it did exist, is like it was in the storybooks. But this kind of is reminiscent of that. You know, you're searching underwater cities that have been lost that came to, you know, I don't want to say like a great flood, but, you know, covered up to rising sea levels. So I find this very fascinating. And I'm also curious what they end up finding as they go through this. Well, the myth of Atlantis, I, I'm going to ask you because I'm not as familiar with that. I, I thought Atlantis was allegedly a thriving city that just happened to be underwater. Is that not the case? Not Not a city that was thriving once and then became submerged underwater. I thought that's actually how it was supposed to be. They lived down below. No, it started out as a city. It was considered one of the most advanced cities during that time. Now, some people sure. want to say like there were flying cars and stuff like that. I think it may have just been, you know, better agriculture, maybe a little more technology, not to the point like, you know, you can have cars and stuff like that. But it was an advanced city. <laughs> Uh, and then a great flood or earthquake or whatever rumor or mythology you want to believe caused the city to be submerged, killing all of the residents. Now, well, they also said how it was really large, but there may have been some scale issue because there's other places where it could have been that look kind of similar hmm. that are submerged on the designs that people have drawn of them, that if you take a smaller scale of it, there's other places it could have been. Now, some people think it was one of these stories, say, past the Straits of Gibraltar, which would have been past Spain and into the Atlantic. But there's other areas where it could have been Mediterranean or something like that. So that's where it gets kind of interesting. Mm. I want to see what happens. Interesting. Well, whatever happened, if we're going to operate under the premise that Atlantis was a real thing, it must have happened quickly. Because if you had a flying car, I would have assumed you could have <laughs> hopped in that bad boy and escaped whatever earthquake or terrible fate rising sea level was occurring uh, in front of you. Again, I don't believe they were that advanced. I think it was probably an earthquake. A tsunami comes, destroys the city, and either then gets submerged or something along those lines. Meet George Jetson. <laughs> he escaped Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs>
Speaking of flooding, a recent study reveals that the resurgence of sea otters with their insatiable appetites has played a crucial role in preserving part of California's marshlands. If you didn't know, sea otters are relentless eaters with a particular fondness for striped shore crab. These crabs are known for digging burrows and nibbling on the roots of marsh grass pickleweed, which contributes to the destabilization of the marsh banks. According to Brent Hughes, a marine ecologist at Sonoma State University and co-author of the study published in the journal Nature, if left unchecked, these crabs can turn the marsh banks into vulnerable terrain resembling Swiss cheese susceptible to collapsing during storms and strong waves. The study found that the presence of sea otters, especially those feeding on the crab population, helped mitigate the erosion. While not completely reversing the process, the sea otters slowed it down to natural levels. Elkhorn Slough, which had been devoid of sea otters for many years due to the 19th century fur trade, which actually nearly wiped out their global population, while well, hunting bans and habitat restoration initiatives gradually helped with the recovery of the sea otter populations. The first otters were spotted in Elkhorn Slough in 1984, and programs like the Monterey Bay Aquarium's efforts to raise and release orphan sea otters further contributed to the population. The research team analyzed historic erosion rates dating back to the 1930s to evaluate the impact of sea otters on the region by establishing fenced areas to prevent otters from accessing certain creek sections. For three years, the researchers observed that those creek banks eroded much faster, providing clear evidence of the sea otter's positive influence. Now, there had been other studies about the return of top predators to various habitats, one of the most famous ones was the reintroduction of the gray wolves to Yellowstone National Park. That actually helped prove how predators maintain ecosystem stability. Wolves reduced the number of elk and moose that ate on saplings and slowed riverbank erosion. Other research has shown that sea otters help kelp forests regrow by controlling the number of sea urchins that eat the kelp. Sea otters are, quote, amazing finders and eaters, said Brian Silliman, a Duke University coastal ecologist and co-author of the study. So first of all, Marcus, did you know that sea otters are considered a top predator out there? No, I really had no idea about that. I mean, I look at those guys and just go, oh, look at these cute little dudes that love to lay on their back, float around and crack nuts or something on their chest. I mean, they're strong little animals. I actually found out they were top predators from a cartoon. Zootopia, when they had the uh, the predators <laughs> going crazy, and I, an otter was one of them. I'm like, what, an otter? And then I looked it up. Yeah, sure enough, they are predators. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess I, in my mind, not all predators are created equal. If you're a sea otter and you're eating crabs, it doesn't have quite as vicious of a connotation <laughs> as a wolf or a pack of wolves going after an elk or something you know, of that nature, that, that yeah. it's just something a little more gruesome about the yeah. latter. Whereas the sea otter is like, oh, okay, here's a little crab. Um, look at it. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't feel any worse than eating a bunch of berries, really. If you're out in the wild and you see a sea otter, you go, uh, you see a wolf, you go, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. You, you know, one of them is intimidating to humans. The other one <laughs> is cute and frankly, probably a guy that I'd love to just hang out with. Although I bet you if you uh, got one upset, they'd probably do some damage to you. That's probably fair. Yeah, not all cute creatures are created to be held or coddled. But it's good to see the sea otters are coming back and helping out those marsh areas in California. Yeah, it really does show you what uh, that really every every living creature or plant has a role in these various ecosystems. And any sort of disruption can really throw off the uh, the way things operate. 
Well, file this under crazy estate discoveries. It's not altogether uncommon to hear about unique items being discovered by family members after someone has passed away. Rare works of art, valuable sports cards, and or record collections. All things you might not be wildly surprised to hear about. This one's a little bit different. Police in Washington State recently discovered an inactive Cold War-era rocket, the kind used to carry a nuclear warhead, in the garage of a deceased individual's home, that per the Associated Press. Bellevue police investigated the military-grade rocket found in the garage of a residence across Lake Washington from Seattle. Upon inspection by the bomb squad, the object was identified as a Douglas AIR-2 Genie, a non-guided air-to-air rocket designed for a 1.5-kiloton W-25 nuclear warhead. Notably, the rocket lacked a warhead and rocket fuel, rendering it an inert artifact with no threat of actually exploding, thank God. Oddly enough, a neighbor of the deceased individual claimed it had been previously purchased at an estate sale. Per police, quote, because the item was inert and the military did not request it back, police left the item with the neighbor to be restored for display in a museum, end quote. Per the Air Force Armament Museum Foundation, the non-guided air-to-air rocket was employed by the U.S. and Canada during a Cold War era marked by significant military apprehension over intercepting Soviet strategic bombers. In July of 1957, a Genie rocket was launched at an altitude of 18,000 feet from an F-89J interceptor detonating over the Yucca Flats in Nevada. This marked the inaugural and sole test detonation of a U.S. nuclear-equipped air-to-air rocket. After the event, police tweeted they expected it would be a long time before they ever received another call like this one. I think we can only hope it to be another long yeah, time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, all's well that ends well. It is really just a cool historical artifact at this point. It's not like he was actually housing a nuclear warhead or anything in his garage. But uh, nonetheless, I can't imagine there are too many of those types of rockets that remain out there. And certainly you wouldn't assume many of them are in uh, civilian hands. The the fact that this was uh, acquired allegedly at a, an estate sale is what's so <laughs> wild to me. Let me ask you this, Reggie. Have you ever been to an estate sale? And if so, what's the wildest thing you've seen there? Uh, my in-laws go all the time. I really don't attend many estate sales. I'm a few years too young to still be heading out to those. <laughs> Wait, there's no, <laughs> there are no age restrictions on who can attend an estate sale. I think you have to have that uh, AARP card. I, I think I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's a requirement. Well, hey, I've been getting AARP mailing since my 20s. So I am too. Uh, really not sure what you what it takes to qualify anymore. I do have to say. He's lucky, first of all, that this wasn't an actual nuclear warhead because, you know, if it was leaking in any way, that would be very bad for him. Well, and not just him. That <laughs> no, would be bad for a lot of people in the immediate yes. vicinity. <laughs> yes. So I guess he's lucky there. And like you said, I wonder how many of these are actually just floating around. And hopefully, you know, there are no more police calls coming to take a look at these because even if it's not active, it, Next time, who knows? It, maybe it's not a nuclear warhead, but maybe they get called in for a bomb that actually is active. And then that's a problem. So hopefully this doesn't occur too often. Wow, you're really thinking on the negative side here. Next time, it might be an active bomb. I mean, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, I agreed. I hope this doesn't happen very often. But yeah, I, I, I would I'd have a hard time believing they'll receive another call like this. Can you imagine being on the other end of that phone call, though? Yeah, I think we've got an old school rocket here inside this guy's garage. Can you guys come take a look? Uh, How big was it? 
Uh, well, it was supposed to be able to carry a 1.5 kiloton nuclear warhead. Did not see an actual size of the rocket itself, but presumably it would have to be pretty big to carry something that heavy on top of it. Where do you put it? I mean, do you not park your car in your garage? Do you put a rocket in there instead? What, what was he planning on doing with it? I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe we, we know nothing about the individual who passed away, unfortunately. Maybe he was a history buff of sorts, you know, a guy with a lot of money on his hands. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that is one of the more bizarre things I can ever recall hearing about uh, finding in, in someone's home after they've passed on. It was on this day in history that the first film based on a Marvel character was released. However, may not be the one you're thinking of. On February 5th, 1944, Captain America, a black and white 15 chapter serial film was released. It stands as the first theatrical release of a Marvel character, or as it was known then. I don't know if you remember, Marcus, us talking about timely comics being founded. I do recall. I do recall. Last uh, couple of weeks we had that story. Yeah, that was on another This Day in History. Well, for this one, though, it was the last Marvel character for 30 years to hit the screen until Spidey Super Stories appears in 1974. As for Captain America, the series starred Dick Purcell as Grant Gardner, a.k.a. Captain America, as he tries to stop the Scarab from acquiring the Dynamic Vibrator and the Electric Firebolt, which could be used as super weapons. Okay. (laughs) That's... (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Never mind our childish laughter here. (laughs) (laughs) Those were super weapons. (laughs) You got to be careful. (laughs) If used in the wrong way, (laughs) no doubt. (laughs) This isn't your kid's Captain America movie. All right, I got it together. So the budget for this Captain America movie uh, it went over budget, actually. It came in at an expected $180,000, but the final cost came in at nearly $223,000 and was the most expensive of all the serials produced by Republic. And it was also holds the title for the most over budget. A few interesting notes. Timely Comics was upset with Steve Rogers not being Captain America and the fact that the Republic had Captain America using a gun instead of his shield. They also didn't like that there were no Nazis in the film, which is who Captain America usually fought in the comics. Other omissions include the super soldier serum. They didn't have that. Bucky, Captain Sidekick, not there. And the fact that Captain America wasn't a soldier, but a district attorney instead fighting crime in his costume. As for the costume, because it was filmed in black and white, he didn't have his traditional red, white, and blue outfit. You know, the one that we're familiar with in the current movies. Instead, it was gray, white, and dark blue, as those colors photographed better at the time. Interesting decision to give Captain America a gun because the shield is really the most iconic part of that character. Yeah, this was the 40s. Captain America still fairly new. I mean, it's not really iconic if it's new, I guess. I suppose. Um, Uh. But Timely Comics or Marvel Comics knows what worked because they stick with their formula and it's successful. This went over budget and they didn't really make any more, so... Well, it seems like a poor decision. If you're choosing a comic book as your inspiration, the comic book, I have to assume, was pretty popular at that point, or why make a movie about it? And then rather than adhere to the details of the comic, which people have come to love, or at least, you know, buying the comics based on those details, you you change a bunch of stuff up. That typically isn't a recipe for success. But to your point, it was the 40s. I, I don't really, you know, I can't put myself in that context to understand it. But looking back on it now, 
not a smart decision. Honestly, I don't understand how you don't put Nazis in the film. I mean, you're in the 40s, 1944. It, it, why aren't you putting Nazis in that film? That's that's a great question. Uh, I, I mean, unless it just hit a little too close to home at that point. I mean, you, you obviously had real soldiers returning from the hell that was World War II. That, that's all I can think of. But you would think, I mean, it's not like propaganda films were light at that time. I, you could yeah, have it would have been a great propaganda that. film, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe Nazis just aren't interested in dynamic vibrators and electric firebolts. I don't know. <laughs> okay. We're not starting this again. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll end it then. That'll do it for this edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. You can always connect with us by email at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. I'm Reggie Rizzo. He's Marcus Path. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. <laughs>